With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The views and opinions expressed on the following program are those of the host and guests and do not necessarily represent those of any organization, including one generation away. America is free. Freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom of enterprise. And freedom is special and rare. This is Liberty Nation with Mark Angelides, a production of LibertyNation.com, going after what the politicians really mean and making it all clear for your freedom and your liberty. Liberty Nation with Mark Angelides. Whether you love him or loathe him, President Donald Trump managed to avoid dragging the United States into yet another war. And some would argue did his utmost to extricate America from costly entanglements on the world stage. Will the future look so kindly on President Joe Biden? Welcome to Liberty Nation Radio, heard coast to coast on the Radio American Network. I'm your host, Mark Angelides. Today, we'll be delving into the theater of war and political opportunism, examining the fallout of President Biden's Middle Eastern escapades and asking why the media are so keen to paint one party as peacekeepers and the other as warmongers when the evidence points to the contrary. Back in 2017, when President Trump oversaw airstrikes against the Syrian airbase in response to chemical attacks against civilians, enormous uproar ensued. The question pushed by the media at the time was whether the president had overstepped his authority and whether such an attack should have had the approval of Congress. Now, numerous media outlets and even politicians on Capitol Hill questioned the legality of this decision. Now that President Joe Biden has launched airstrikes against Iran-backed militia on the Syria-Iraq border, are we seeing a similar reaction? Or is the current president getting a free pass? To help us unravel the legality, operations, and rules, we're joined by Dave Patterson, Liberty Nation author, retired U.S. Air Force pilot, and the former Principal Deputy Undersecretary of Defense Controller. Welcome, Dave Patterson. Thank you, Mark. Always glad to be with you. Great. Now, Dave, can you give us a brief description uh, of under what rulings President Joe Biden made the decision to allow airstrikes on the Syria-Iraq border? Well, I think that overall, I think he uses two uh, legislative tools. First of all, the uh, authorization for the use of military force, which uh, was uh, passed in 2002. And secondly, the uh, War Powers Act of 1973, which is much broader, and there are only three criteria for that particular uh, legislation. Uh, first, Congress has declared war, which is fairly obvious. And secondly, that uh, Congress has provided a specific statutory authorization, like the authorization for the use of military force. And thirdly, uh, there's a national emergency of uh, some kind created by an attack on the United States or its territories, possessions, or armed forces. So you can see how broad that is. And the uh, uh, current president is thinking about that as well as uh, Obama and uh, Trump. How is this different from what President Trump did back in 2017? So, I mean, the, the distinction between 45's actions and that of President Obama, I know that the, the media was very keen to say that this was uh, done under these acts 
because ISIS was already uh, a known target. So there was some kind of congressional authorization for that when Obama did it, uh, but not so with Trump. Is that the case? Well, I think if you'll remember, uh, ISIS actually developed and grew under uh, President Obama because, as is so often the case, he wasn't minding the store. I mean, he had the red line, as you'll recall, in Syria, which didn't mean much. Uh, but oddly enough, when President Trump came in, that red line did mean something. And, and consequently, he authorized airstrikes. And he authorized those airstrikes under the uh, 1973 War Powers Act. So Secretary of State Tony Blinken, he said that the, the Biden airstrikes here, and, and I'm going to quote this uh, in full here, we took necessary, appropriate, deliberate action that is designed to limit the risk of escalation, but also to send a clear and unambiguous deterrent message. Well, as a deterrent, this appears to be a non-starter, Dave. On Monday night, U.S. forces actually came under fire. Uh, is it possible this was a direct retaliation? And if so, what does it tell us about the idea of these airstrikes as a deterrent? I think the airstrikes as deterrents uh, are a fail. I mean, that's a flawed concept. Uh, the, this administration, like so many before it, have not taken the time to understand how to deal with the ideological aspects and elements of what we face. And until we do, then we're going to have this uh, tit for tat, or as I put it, whack-a-mole approach to uh, uh, mischief that takes place in the Middle East. So broadening the scope a little here, David, um, President Biden still seems determined to, to push ahead with a re-envisioned Iran nuclear deal. Uh, what is the president hoping to get from this? Uh, and what are the Iranian sticking points? Well, I'll tell you that it's very difficult for anybody to assess it from a, from a logical perspective because uh, it is a, as though the Biden administration is uh, coming to the table uh, hat in hand and uh, be, being the uh, less powerful uh, part of the negotiations when it's exactly the opposite. The right. Biden administration has everything going for them. The sanctions are really being uh, destructive on the Iranian uh, economy and they're desperate to get those uh, re uh, taken off. Well, I mean, Iran has recently uh, elected uh, Ebrahim Raisi, I believe it's pronounced, uh, as its leader, who's, who's backed by, the, uh, by Ayatollah Khomeini and regarded as, as very much a hardliner. Now, he seems keen to get the sanctions lifted, as he discussed in his, uh, I guess you'd call it an acceptance speech, uh, and to proceed with the, the nuclear deal. But in your opinion, is the U.S. in a better or worse position now that this new hardline leadership is, is coming into place? I would say that it's in a uh, better uh, position because now it has at least, you know, the, the moral authority to maintain the sanctions because if you have a hardliner, then it's going to, it should prompt a uh, equally hard line from the United States. Whether it does or not, of course, is remains to be seen. As with everything. Um, now, we can't discuss Iran without discussing proxy wars, which is something that uh, seems very much swept under the carpet over the last few months. 
It seems that much of the violence, the unrest, and indeed the murders and terrorist attacks that are taking place in the Middle East uh, are being carried out by groups that are at least nominally backed by the Iranian government, um, whether that's uh, cash, support, tactical advice, things like this. Why is this not, not something that gets a lot of coverage? And why is the president negotiating and not making the fiscal and tactical support uh, for these attack groups a sticking point? Uh, well, I'm, I always think it dangerous to ascribe some motivation to uh, highly political figures. But I can tell you that uh, Iran backs Hamas, Hezbollah, and uh, the Houthi militants in, uh, in Yemen. And uh, the reaction of this administration is puzzling. They take these uh, Houthi uh, extremists and terrorists off the terrorist list. And uh, it just doesn't make any sense. And it's as though, well, if we're really nice to them, then they'll be really nice to us. That has been a failed approach since Caesar tried it with the Gauls. So Dave, one more question. It seems that uh, in terms of foreign diplomacy, Joe Biden is, is very eager to to bring everybody into his, his friend circle. We've seen this with the G7 that we spoke about a couple of weeks ago. Uh, we saw this with NATO, where he was accepted as a welcoming friend. Now, uh, do you think that perhaps this type of attitude, although it may work very well on uh, a more globalist cooperation scene with, with people who uh, have similar motivations in mind and similar um, projects they want to complete, do you think this is going to work with people who are, as you point out earlier, ideologically opposed to what the United States is doing? No, I don't. I mean, it hasn't historically. Uh, when it comes to uh, Europe, Europe has a an agenda and it continues to press on with that agenda. And it's not lost on uh, people in the Middle East when the Biden administration takes the sanctions off the Nord Stream 2 and stops the Keystone XL pipeline. They get it. They understand that that demonstrates weakness. And that's where they see the United States uh, globally. Dave Patterson, thank you very much. This is Liberty Nation Radio. We'll be right back after this short break on the Radio America Network. freedom and your liberty liberty nation with mark angelides it's been quite the season for the supreme court from some landmark decisions to strange bedfellows across the ideological divide is the judicial branch making a play for unity that has so far eluded the other two branches of government to help us sift through the morass of jurisprudence we're joined by liberty nation's legal affairs editor and host of the uprising podcast mr scott de cosenza welcome scott hi mark Scott, as a dedicated court watcher and stalwart defender of the Constitution, uh, what were the cases that tickled your patriot bone this last term, and why were they so significant? Well, it's hard to get past the, 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 the kind of closing out of the court with two rulings, uh, one upholding Arizona voting restrictions in the face of a challenge that they were unconstitutional, and that came right along ideological lines. And the second was a freedom of speech case that also was decided 
right along ideological lines that said that conservative groups can keep their member lists private in the face of California govern, governance is try, uh, trying to kind of get access to them. Uh, what would be the purpose of getting access to these lists? Would it be publication? <laughs> oh, would it be uh, efforts to shame and name? You know, I have to, I, I apologize for laughing, but it seems like there's only one reasonable, rational purpose for them to get at them. And it's to do all that, to somehow frustrate those people from, a, exercising their First Amendment rights or frustrate those uh, groups from getting members and finance. So we're talking about Americans for Prosperity was one of the named plaintiffs and also uh, the Thomas More Law Center, I think, was another one. These are conservative groups. And Mark, the named, uh, the kind of landmark uh, case in the field for this, this type of thing before uh, the, before the final week of the Supreme Court's term was uh, an NAACP case. So this is famous kind of action against the NAACP to get access to its voter li- or, or supporter lists, rather, to smash the, the, the support for it. I don't necessarily mean physically, but to, you know, if it's poor form to be a supporter for this, so you can be shunned from society, rather that is in polite society in the South during segregation or in 2021 in California, uh, either way, it's a, an imposition on free speech. And the six conservative justices called it a, uh, basically an imposition that it, it's a prima facie imposition. There is no further uh, kind of delving into the facts necessary. There's no good reason, they said, for the state to require this in, in information. It is an imposition against the First Amendment. And it's a sad thing to see liberals, quote unquote, I'll use the air quotes, the liberals vote in favor of this restriction uh, on free speech. Let's look quickly at the the other case that that, uh, came through, which is the voting rights one. Now, uh, obviously, there are certain elements that this is looking at, but would it be, uh, I'm curious on this one here, would it be if uh, the Senate uh, passes new laws and Joe Biden signs new laws on federal voting mandates, would that impact the ruling in Arizona. So the ruling we just got, Mark, was another six to three ruling, conservatives versus uh, liberals, that upheld Arizona's uh, voting laws as consistent with the Constitution. The liberals wanted it to be ruled unconstitutional. That's based on the Civil Rights Act of 1965, a federal law. If there's a new federal law in place, then any judgment would have to be seen in light of that new federal law. So we would have to actually have the specific language to be able to judge it against. But right now, the conservatives, at least six of them say Arizona is allowed to, for instance, require voting within a certain district, uh, not enact sort of all these other broad changes that leftists and liberals seem to want in our voting system. OK, now we, we can't talk uh, law without discussing a doctor, I might add, Dr. Bill Cosby. So that was a bombshell that Bill Cosby has now been released from prison, I guess, a year earlier than he would have had the possibility to. I got to ask, Scott, uh, does this mean in any way that he's exonerated? Well, to the second question, absolutely not. He has not been exonerated. Um, and in fact, the, the court in its ruling seemed to contemplate that he was likely very much factually guilty of the charges. Now, you were right to say in your uh, artfully drawn uh, discussion of his term that he may have been released in one year, but almost certainly he would not have been. So he had a term from three to three to 10, three to 10. Okay. And he was in year two. So all the court did Mark in its ruling, instead of saying that uh, Cosby was not guilty or innocent or anything like that, which they didn't say was just that 
he had a right to rely on the promise of prosecutors when they were made. The prosecution, Bruce Castor is the name of the district attorney, uh, the Pennsylvania district attorney who ruled, or ruled is maybe a bit rich, who decided he didn't have enough evidence to successfully uh, bring charges against Cosby for assault, for sexual assault. And so he worked with the victim or alleged victim's attorney to forswear the continued prosecution of Bill Cosby, the criminal prosecution for those acts. And the reason for that, Mark, getting a little bit into the weeds here, but the reason for that is that if he signs off and say, I will not prosecute Bill Cosby for these alleged crimes, then in a civil suit against Mr. Cosby, Cosby cannot assert his Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination and fail to testify. So it was actually an act taken in furtherance of trying to get some manner of justice for this perceived victim of, of Bill Cosby. And so Castor signs off on this. Cosby does have to, to testify. He does give evidence against himself and subsequent to Bruce Castor's reign and as Montgomery County District Attorney, his successor charges Cosby, successfully prosecutes him with the new evidence. Based on his Cosby's own testimony. Cosby's argument says, hey, I shouldn't have to have given that evidence in the first place. I should have been able to rely on this prosecutor's promise. And that's what the, the, the court ruled um, that, that Cosby could rely on those. And I'll just say quickly, Mark, this, uh, this kind of uh, judgment is not going to accrue to the benefit of rich celebrities mostly. It's going to accrue to the every person who can now rely on a promise made by a prosecutor, which is consistent with, with liberty, I think. Uh, just, just one more follow-up on the Bill Cosby thing. Does he have a case to, to regain his legal fees spent on his criminal defense? This is going to be when it becomes really vulgar, is that not only is he out, but that he's going to get you know, a, a big check from the Commonwealth, probably. I, I suspect that will happen. I also suspect, Mark, that he'll be charged criminally in other jurisdictions. Cosby has been called the most successful serial rapist in the United States history. So uh, there, there seems to be no, uh, no lack of uh, complainants against Mr. Cosby. Final question, Scott, and I think it's one that, that many people are asking themselves. Is the new conservative-heavy SCOTUS bench delivering for conservatives? Mark, it's hard not to look at the last two cases of the term and, and think that it is paying off. We've had six to three and six to three decisions. And I think that uh, without saying it in a uh, derogatory way, Justice, uh, Chief Justice Roberts has a kind of way of um, perhaps not being quite as firm as some of the other justices. So that could have easily been two justices in the other direction uh, if it weren't for Justice Roberts maybe trying to make a, a majority you know, a little more, a little bit more impactful, I think. So uh, I think it is paying off. We've got a, a really big decision from Arizona with these voting rights and a really big decision for free speech for conservatives. And Lord knows that's where all the attacks on free speech are. If you're, uh, if you're a leftist or a progressive, it's hard to, to need to assert your free speech rights in America these days. Scott DiCosenza, thank you very much. Thanks, Mark. And we'll be right back after this short break on Liberty Nation Radio. Freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom of enterprise, 
and freedom is special and rare. This is Liberty Nation with Mark Angelides, a production of LibertyNation.com, going after what the politicians really mean and making it all clear for your freedom and your liberty. Liberty Nation with Mark Angelides. Less than half a year into his presidency and Middle East tensions are on the rise once more. It's perhaps time to take the long historical view and ask whether Democrats as a whole are a party of war. To help us answer this question, we have the great privilege of being joined by the former host of Liberty Nation Radio and now senior political analyst for Liberty Nation, Mr. Tim Donner. Wonderful to have you on, Tim. Great to be back with you, Mark. So let's jump right into it. How is it that this idea as Democrats, as peacemakers and Republicans as warmongers became so prevalent? It seems that folks are willing to ignore the facts of history. What's your take on this? Well, all you have to do to reach that conclusion, Mark, is to to overlook the fact that Democrats started World War I, World War II, Korea, and Vietnam. In fact, in, in terms of recent American military history, you can only lay the Iraq War at the feet of the GOP. But even then, it came with the support of many Democrats, including Hillary Clinton, who paid a political price for it. Joe Biden has supported virtually every American involvement in foreign military conflicts throughout his almost 50-year career. So, you know, it's revisionist history, really, and it's easy to term the Republicans a party of war, but it's become more difficult, Mark, because Donald Trump, who we'll discuss, was the first president in over 20 years, the first one this century, not to get us involved in any additional foreign conflicts. And lest people forget, he's a Republican. Yeah, it, it seems that uh, Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden never, never met a, a Middle Eastern conflict they didn't enjoy. Um, and I think that's something a lot of people uh, were very grateful to have President Trump win the election because Hillary was really viewed as uh, keen on, on foreign interventionism. And so I, I think that was a, a major relief well, for I many think people. That, uh, I think that suppressed the vote among Democrats that of the two candidates, Hillary Clinton was the only one with any kind of record that would support, you know, foreign military intervention. She'd voted for Iraq. That caused her a lot of trouble in her own party. And yet, as we look now, the alliance in Washington is the neoconservative Republican establishment together with traditional liberal Democrats who really formed the, the so-called neoconservative base. So it's, it's actually the establishment of both parties that really serve as pro-war. It's funny that you say uh, the establishment base there because this historical pattern, it, it seems the very uh, antithesis of populism or, or populist policy. And it's, I mean, we, we know that it, it's so rarely the public that wants to go to war. You know, John, Jim and Jill down the road, they, they don't sit at home thinking, you know what we need now? Another war. That will get the economy boosted up. That will, yeah. uh, that will give us an excuse to spend more money on a, a range of different pet projects. They don't want it. It's, it, it's, it's very much a, an anti-populist movement to go to war, don't you think? Well, it is. 
But it's also true that all those people that think that Franklin Delano Roosevelt's New Deal programs were the one that the things that pulled us out of the depression, it actually was going to war that pulled us out of the depression because of the production line that was started in the United States and the jobs that were created. So uh, war, you know, war can be good for an economy. And I assume oh, yeah. the Democrats somehow understood that. But I, I, look, I can't I can't remember who first said it, but it was some uh, the company the the country that produces the most steel wins the most wars. Well, and it <laughs> makes total sense. Um, yeah. Before uh, and after the nuclear age. Uh, but, you know, populism, populism implies the popular will. And the most populous thing you can get, the, the, the biggest thing that you can get among the populist movement, among people who call themselves populist, which basically means give the people what they want, is not sending our men and women off to war. And that is as true today as it was in the Roman Republic and before the Roman kingdoms as well, when the, the populari, uh, the populari families, they, were, they, they had political power and they wanted more. So they would come up with a, a, a position that would be supported by the people. Uh, and more often than not, that was, let's not go to war. Let's not conscript everybody and leave your farms empty. Let's, you know, let's just not. And they became the, of course, further down the line, the populari became the old guard. But uh, yeah, at the time, that, that, that was the, the, the crux of it is don't go to war. And it's as true now as it was two and a half thousand years ago. Um, let's move on to, to the next question, Tim, if I may. I feel that uh, Donald Trump's presidency um, throughout it, many in the fourth estate were, were so quick to pounce on him and declare him a, let's call it a dangerous presence on the world stage. Um, we were told he's going to start World War III. We were told he's the new Hitler uh, of all things. Um, yet, as I recall, there are only a, a small handful of, of military-type actions during his four-year. One of those was a very swift response to um, the Assad government using chemical weapons on its own civilian population. And the other was to take down... Uh, General Soleimani. So arguably, this was a very non-interventionist president. Do you think this will be one of his enduring legacies? Not for a while. Because historians will have to take a look at the full sweep of history, but they'll see that he's the first president of the 21st century that did not escalate military involvement of the United States. I mean, that's a fact. You know, it's hard to argue with facts, but, you know, I suppose the left can come up with their own alternative flat, uh, facts. But, you know, they don't want to point out that Trump was a peacetime president. Their basic logic was, look, this guy's this bombastic billionaire, speaks off the cuff, speaks his mind, says outrageous things, insults people. Therefore, he must be a warmonger. That was sort of the assumption, and that was what was sold to the American people, and they never came back to say, oh, by the way, like good, good on Trump that he didn't have any new foreign conflicts in the first three years. But, you know, it's all posturing. I mean, the Democrats, when you talk about posturing, like posturing the Republicans as the party of war, as the Democrats as party of peace, well, the Democrats have also postured as the party 
of anti-slavery, of anti-racism, of anti-Jim Crow, which, again, all you have to do is ignore the fact that they were the ones that institutionalized slavery, institutionalized Jim Crow. And when it comes to wars, Woodrow Wilson won a re-election to the presidency in 1916 with the promise that he would keep us out of war. And then he proceeded to get us into war. World War II, I don't think anybody would quarrel with the results of what were essentially two world wars. But fast forward to Korea, which we played to a draw, barely. And then Vietnam, which was a disaster with only Democrat blood on their hands. Now, Iraq was a stain as well. But again, it came with the support of the Democratic Party. It's, uh, it's funny you talk about the historical revisionism because uh, you, you'll note this week that uh, a, a bill passed uh, through the House to remove um, reminders of slavery in the form of uh, statues and statuettes within Congress. And uh, uh, Kevin McCarthy, uh, House uh, Republican leader, noted that all of the statues, they're of Democrats. Uh, every single one of the statues that they want removed because of the reminders of slavery, and uh, including a, uh, a, a Supreme Court justice who advocated for slavery, uh, all were actually Democrats. So yeah, historical revisionism, right well, now as I, it was back then. And you have to look at the other side of it. Mm. The Republican Party was founded on the single stated objective of ending slavery. That was a Republican party. Now, if they wanted to end slavery, there had to be a party that was supporting slavery. That would be the Democrats. Well, sure, surely Abraham Lincoln would have been a Republican then, Tim. Yeah. <laughs> uh, lest we forget, but you know, people want to forget that. The left wants to forget that just like they want to forget the entire civil war, which was fought to end slavery. The only war ever fought in the history of civilization for the purpose of ending slavery, but they skip right over that with their critical race theory. Yeah, Joe Biden mentioned the other day um, that now, at the present time, he, he feels that America has never been more divided since the Civil War. And it's, uh, as, we, as we often like to say, you and I, Tim, that nothing ever really changes and there's nothing new under the sun. Uh, it really does seem that there's a historical parallels right now. Now, perhaps it's time to start uh, stating what many of us are thinking, that Joe Biden's time in office, before it's done, we, we, got, we are going to see an escalation of tensions and likely more overt military engagement. Now, how do Democrats square this circle, should it happen, when you have members of their own party are so vehemently on the side of the let's call them the would-be opposition when it comes to the Middle East conflict. I'm, of course, referring to, to squad members and notable others. How do they square that circle? Well, they get their activist media, the progressive, the progressive, what I should call the media wing of the progressive movement, to simply ignore the conflict, to not identify that there is a conflict between pro-military Democrats and anti-military Democrats like the squad, they simply ignore the internal conflict almost to the same degree that they explode and amplify Republican conflicts. They simply talk it down. 
And what the, you know, they proved with the Hunter Biden laptop story and with a whole bunch of other things, that it, including the exploding success of the economy before the pandemic, just ignore it. And maybe people won't notice. I think, Tim, that uh, a highly relevant point and one that is all, almost certainly true. And, and it ties in very much with the, um, the idea that we have all these other wars. So not necessarily boots on the ground wars, but the war on drugs, the war on terror, the war on poverty. Um, and, and it seems that the, the powers that be, those, those who are in charge, want to have a successful war win to their title. Um, it's fantastic for going into the next set of elections. Well, I mean, the war on poverty is complete failure. Exceeded yep. perhaps only by the war on drugs, which is an even bigger failure because since they launched the war on drugs, drugs are more available, more widespread, cheaper and stronger than they ever were. I call that a failure. What about you, Mark? Yeah, I'd say it, it's right up there with the war on terror that uh, it, it appeared for a short time during, uh, during Donald Trump's presidency that it, it was about to become a thing of the past. But now, I mean, obviously, Tony Blinken, Secretary of State, saying that th these recent airstrikes were, were to de-escalate the situation. It, it's almost Orwellian, isn't it? it was, yes, it is. You, you bomb people in order to create peace. Sure, that makes sense, Mark, doesn't it? Absolutely. Well, I, I think we'll leave the, the last words to Mr. George Orwell. Uh, war is peace for the Democrat Party, apparently. Many thanks to Mr. Tim Donner. Great to be with you, Mark. And we'll be right back after this short break on Liberty Nation Radio. freedom and your liberty. Liberty Nation with Mark Angelides. The recent airstrikes by President Joe Biden have exposed a number of not-so-hidden facts. First, that Democrats, despite proclaiming themselves the party of peace, really aren't. Second, that Donald Trump will be regarded by historians as an ultimately peaceful president, at least in comparison. And third, that our much-vaunted fourth estate is only too happy to act as a mouthpiece for the far left. As Groucho Marx once opined, these are my principles. If you don't like them, I have others. When Trump bombed Syria in response to chemical weapons attacks, he was called a warmonger. When he took out General Soleimani, he was accused of promoting violence. And of course, when he sent mean tweets directed at North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un, well, he was just about calling for World War III, wasn't he? At least that's the opinion of many of our professional journalists. When the president uses such tactics, they're often called on them. The mechanism by which they can launch these attacks is known as the authorized use of military force, which was passed in 2001 in response to the 9-11 travesty. Now, President Trump in his four years in office took advantage of this act just twice. President Obama, on the other hand, according to the Congressional Research Service report, cited it 21 times. Even granting that President Obama had eight years in office, that's still more than 500% more uses than Donald Trump. 
And yet still this idea of Democrats as the party of peace and Republicans as the party of war persists. It's a true optimist that does not suspect more airstrikes and military actions await us in the very near future. And with the prospect of war, because that's what these continuing tit-for-tat exchanges will likely lead to, or at least a war by any other name, sides must be chosen. President Biden may be attempting clarity in defining who is the enemy, but not all of his party may be on the same page. How will Joe Biden drag the nation towards his vision of unity if he can't even get his own side to follow him? The president believes that America has never been so divided. Speaking on his reasons for initially running for president, he said this. But you know what? I said the third reason I was running was to unify the country. Well, folks, it's never been as divided as it is today. Never been as divided as it is today since the Civil War. And folks, it's such a waste of talent, such a waste of time. And the rest of the world is looking at us. Well, for nine out of the last 13 years, he was right at the top of government. So that leaves us two possibilities. One, that unity, or at least some semblance of it, can't be achieved nor granted by government intervention and programs. Or two, Joe Biden, and with him, former President Barack Obama, are directly responsible for the direction the country is taking right now. There is, of course, a third option. Uh, perhaps it was that President Trump was so divisive that he undid the work done by the previous White House head honchos. But that would require, A, that the work done by the dynamic duo was so fragile that it could be undone by a single national vote. And B, that the political left and their cheerleaders in the fourth estate gave President Trump a fair shot and an opportunity to build on the present level of unity. It would take a kind heart to suggest that Democrats were not out for blood and or impeachment from before Trump was even sworn into office. So with the possibility of greater conflict on the horizon, a fractured ruling party and a nation that, in the words of the president himself, has never been so divided, where does that leave America? It's not only foreign affairs that are causing issues for the current administration, though. Vice President Kamala Harris, after more than three months uh, have passed since she's been tapped to deal with the southern border crisis, finally made an official visit. Although it wasn't quite what many expected. Rather than visiting the actual border, the border czar spent much of her time at the airport with a brief visit to a border patrol station some miles from the actual border. Now, we all know that politics is a theater, but which politico could resist the photo opportunity with such a grand backdrop? Well, likely one that doesn't want to be filmed in either in front of 500 miles of actual border wall that President Trump had built, or in front of a wide open space or a dilapidated piece of wall that they know full well to be unsafe. And of course, there remains much speculation that even this begrudging trip was brought about because Donald Trump was planning his own visit. So trouble overseas, trouble at home. If there's one thing that we've all probably noticed after years of political watching is that the denizens of Capitol Hill never let a good crisis go to waste. 
And with that, the notion that a distraction from problems at home is often invaluable. We could argue the justness or the justice of the recent airstrikes and the likelihood of more to come. But as President Trump displayed so well, when one is strong at home, one doesn't need to play the bully abroad. Thank you for listening to Liberty Nation Radio right here on the Radio American Network. I'm your host, Mark Angelides. And as ever, I wish you the very best in your constant pursuit of liberty, freedom, and happiness. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.